Welcome to The Truth Must Be Told. I hope that you have been enjoying this podcast. We have covered many subjects, and, you know, we're going to continue to do that. The response has been excellent, and I will continue to bring you quality podcasts from which you can learn and perhaps give you some hope in this uncertain world. If you have missed any episodes, you can go to thetruthmustbetold.org and you will find a link for anchor.fm, which will allow you to listen to previous podcasts absolutely free. It's free to visit the site and free to listen. And while you're there, consider hitting that support button and help this ministry to continue to grow around the world. Thank you for your support and for joining me here on The Truth Must Be Told. We'll be continuing our discussion on the Catholic Church today on The Truth Must Be Told. He's just ignorant. He doesn't know any better than to tell the truth. It's the truth. I just want to report the truth. It'd be a nice change of pace. When in doubt, tell the truth. And when I try to tell the truth, and they kick me off the air. You can't handle the truth. And now, speaking the truth, even though it hurts, here's the host of The Truth Must Be Told, Sal Passos. I really like that introduction. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? Uh, um, hello to my Facebook listeners who are here live with me. I am deciding to do the Facebook Live. I'm going to get a little more, uh, what do we call it, a uh, little more exposure out there. I'm not getting a lot of people tuning in, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what's happened? If you, you know, you're getting tired of the program, let me know. You know, if you think I'm an idiot, let me know. I really would appreciate it, but... Uh, uh, you know, it's it's really it's it's great to be here. Though I really enjoy being here on the air with you. If you oh, by the way, you notice I got an on the air sign over here. It's right there. Uh, my wife just gave me that for Father's Day, which I really appreciate. Uh, so it makes it look a little nicer. I'm gonna do some more changing in here and get things situated a little bit better. But uh, you know, I got my banner behind me there. The truth must be told. And, and uh, we've got the on the air sign now, so we're, we're getting there. So I hope you guys are tuning in, but we're here. So today we're going to be hitting a second, our second installment on Roman Catholicism, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to read to you an article uh, <clears throat> before we start. I got this from the ChristianPost.com, and uh, the, the title of the article reads, Democrat warns Catholic Church that it may be stripped of tax-exempt status if politicians are denied communion. So a U.S. Uh, Catholic bishop's draft of a controver controversial document on whether priests can deny communion to politicians who support abortion, one House Democrat has implied that the Catholic Church should lose its tax-exempt status if churches institute such a ban. If we're going to politically weaponize religion by rebuking Democrats who support women's productive choice, then a rebuke of their tax exempt status may be in order. And that was by Representative Jared Huffman, a Democrat, surprise, surprise, out of California, in a Twitter post lashing out against the Catholic bishops. Huffman's post came nearly 60 hours, or nearly uh, came after nearly 60 House Democrats released a statement of principles to warn U.S. Conference of Catholic bishops against what they deem as weaponizing the Eucharist. We recognize that no political party is perfectly in accord with all aspects of church doctrine. This fact seems to the secular nature of American democracy, not, de not devotion to our democratically elected leaders. Yet, we believe we can speak to the fundamental issues that unite us as Catholics and lend our voice to changing the political debate. 
a debate that often fails to reflect and encompass the depth and complexity of these issues. Good for you, Catholics. Uh, we believe the separation of church and state allows for our faith to inform public duties and best serve our constituents. The sacrament of Holy Communion is, a, is, a, is central to the life of practicing Catholics and the weaponizing of the Eucharist to Democratic lawmakers for the support um, of a woman's safe and legal access to abortion is contradictory to that. Supporters of withholding communion from pro-abortion Catholics, Catholic politicians both inside and outside of the church hierarchy, point to the church's code of canon law as justification for their position. The code of canon law states, quote, that those who are obstinately perversing in manifest grave sin are not admitted to the Holy Communion. So uh, keep this article in mind because we'll be coming back to it a little later today. But uh, uh, there's a lot to cover, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I thought this was a very interesting article that now the Catholics are tell- uh, the, uh, the Democrats are telling the Catholics that they cannot bar them from Holy Communion. So now they're, they're trying to run. Now, you know, <clears throat> this is the thing. First of all, I just want to address this real quickly before I get into this, that, uh, and it just thought just popped into my mind about this. You know that um, the separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. That phrase came from uh, uh, a letter written, I believe, by Thomas Jefferson to a Baptist church in Connecticut, I think making reference to um, a separation of church and state, but it doesn't has, has nothing to do with the Constitution. The Constitution, it clearly in the First Amendment, says that we have the right to practice our religions, no matter what they may be, without any interference from the government. It was set so that the government would not interfere with churches, not the churches interfering with the government, okay? Because we have di- people from different beliefs and different structures all, over, all around in government, and uh, there's there's... No reason that, uh, you know, that they can't apply their influence into what they... Do you know it was years ago that the, uh, the government actually issued Bibles to different places? I mean, it was just... It's interesting. You look that history up, it's all out there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something interesting to look at. Now, on to Roman Catholicism. Now, I want to read this disclaimer again. I will do this every time that we talk about Roman Catholicism, Okay. Uh, I am not knocking down of the Catholic Church or faith. I was raised a Catholic, and I left the church when I was saved in 1977. So I'm not bashing the church, nor its members. What I am doing is looking at the beginnings of the church and its doctrines, so that, or should I say dogmas, so that you, the listener, can make your own choices. And that's always the way it is with this podcast. I am not here to tell you how to think. I am not at the news media. I do not say, you need to think this way. It's not what I'm here for. I'm here for you to make your own decisions, okay, on what you think you should do, <clears throat> how you should believe. That is up to you entirely. Excuse me. Okay, so that is up to you entirely. All right, but today, uh, the last time we were together, we spoke of the dogmas, some of the dogmas of the church, and we talked in detail about the veneration of Mary. And if you don't know what that word means, Veneration means uh, the same as worship, basically, the worshiping of Mary and worshiping of the saints. Uh, That's what veneration means. Uh, Today, we will continue with some of the other dogmas of the church that are listed on the website of traditionalcatholicpriest.com, and you can go there and you can look these up yourself. There's 255 of them. 
and I was not intending to cover all 255 because some of them actually actually correspond with uh, co 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 actually line up with scripture. I'm sorry, my brain's not working for some reason. It actually lines up with scripture, so there's no reason to reject them on that. And this, and I discussed in the first uh, the first episode, the first part, first installment of this study, was that the there's controversy as to whether the Catholic Church is a cult or not. And this was a very this is a very touchy subject, and I don't want to offend anybody. And I know it's a very sensitive thing, because uh, there are a lot of Catholics in the world. And they don't want you to think that, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm in a cult. No, you're not. Or I don't want to listen to Sal because he says it's a cult. I don't personally believe it's a cult. But it does have issues that go along. They believe in the Holy Trinity. They believe in the deity of Christ. They uh, believe in, uh, in salvation through, through the sacrifice of Christ. But they have additions to that, which are some of the things we're going to be talking about. <clears throat> and that's where the... That's where the um, questioning comes in because of their dogmas, all right? So now we're going to be covering uh, dogma number 120 and dogma number 121, all right? And this is, uh, this is, um, uh, let me just read it, okay? Dogma 120 says, God, by his eternal resolve of will, has predetermined certain men to eternal blessedness. 121 says, God, by an eternal resolve of his will, predestined certain men on account of their foreseen sins to eternal rejection. Now, this is another dogma that does not line up with Scripture. Now, I know there are those in the evangelical faith that agree with this. And they, they, they're, it's called predestination, and they believe in the uh, elect, that the elect are only certain people, and only certain people are going to get saved, and the rest of the people are going to be going to hell. So where... You know, and, and so I see where they're going with that, but I do not agree with this. Scripture is very plain, and it's very, very plain to the reader. If you take the time to read it and actually look at the words, it's very important because when they translated from the Bible from Greek or Hebrew into English, you have to understand the context of which they're, they're, the context of the words in which their meaning is. Okay, so I don't agree with this. The scripture is plain. In first, in excuse me, in John one twenty nine, Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist looks at Jesus and proclaims, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." All right. Now that Greek word "world" is where we get our word, our English word "cosmos," meaning everywhere. It's everything. It's all embracing. So the taking away of the sin of the world is literally everybody, okay? It doesn't mean only certain people, all right? So want another one? Okay, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only begotten Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's that world, that word world again, all right? Now, there are many, many passages in both the Old and the New Testament that speak of the Messiah saving the world, that he's saving for all men, not just a select few. But men have to believe in him in order to be saved. Okay, there's, there's, there's no question on that. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for everyone's sin. All right, He died on the cross 
so that you and I and all who would believe in him would be saved. All right, it has nothing to do with anything else. We're going to be getting into a few things today, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But Jesus Christ died on that cross so that all who believe should come to him. Okay? That says, whoever, and the King James says, whosoever, but whoever believes in him shall not perish. Because he has made the way by dying on that cross. He loved the world, not just the elect. All right. All right. The next dogma is number 125. The justification of an adult is not possible without faith. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. That kind of act, that, that's what it says. You have to have faith in, in Jesus Christ. All right. But now 126 and 133 says, besides faith, further acts of disposition must be present. And number 133 says, grace can be increased by good works. Well, what do you think of that? Well, no, that's not what's in there. The idea of works seems to be right in the eyes of man. Man wants to be in charge, and he feels that if he does good works, he'll be justified before God. And it's, this is where I think the Catholic Church got this, because men were writing these things, and men said, oh, well, you know, yeah, okay, we can have faith, but we have to have works on, uh, on, uh, on side of it. And no, no, you, it, it's not what it says. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that none of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that any man should boast. All right, so, and then it says, because the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So I know it's making reference to the Old Testament law here, but it still applies. Remember, in the uh, Jesus came to fulfill the law of the Old Testament, and that in the uh, Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed, and in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. So we see that, that no matter what we do as far as works are concerned, and this is written to the Jew, the Jew would immediately understand this, <clears throat> that it's not the works of the law that bring, that it, the law brings the knowledge of sin. All right, so the, the good works doesn't do it. Now here's another, uh, Galatians 2.16 says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. <clears throat> you can't do it of your own righteousness. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament, I don't know exactly where it is, but it says that the uh, your own righteousness in the sight of the Lord, is as like a filthy rags. I don't want to get gross here, but that term filthy rags means a woman's menstrual pad. Okay? And that's how disgusting your works, your own righteousness, is in the sight of God himself. So, 
you're not going to be justified by your works. Okay? And the whole problem with the law is that even if you kept all of it, as much as you can, you're still going to fail in some area of that law. So your <clears throat> every effort you make, you know, you look at a, at a woman with lust at one time, boom, you violated one of the comments of the, the, the statutes of the law. So there, there you're, not, you're not perfect. But those who tried to live righteously were, were well, oh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, excuse me. All right, so the whole problem, again, like I said, you, they, it, the law was there to remind people that they needed a Savior, basically. Because we'll see that we're, we're not justified by the works of the law. All right, so number 135 and 136 says this. By his good works, the justified man really acquires a claim to supernatural reward from God. A just man merits for himself through each good work an increase of sanctifying grace, eternal life if he dies in the state of grace, and an increase in heavenly glory. So they're saying here that uh, if you, the more good works you do, all right, he's, you're more justified before God. And this goes back to what we were saying here, okay, is what we were saying before, that man wants it to be that way. He wants to say, well, I've done all of this good, God, don't you see? I've gone to church every Sunday. I've taken the, the, uh, the sacraments. I've got baptized when I was an infant. Uh, I've been there. I've gone to confession. I've prayed the prayers. I've done all these things. So aren't I justified in your sight? No, you're not. Okay? This is the thing. The Catholic Church holds to this, that the more good works you do, that you'll be you'll gain some kind of higher place in heaven, uh, claim to a really higher supernatural reward from God, uh, just as man merits for himself through each good work an increase of sanctifying grace to eternal life if he dies in the state of grace. So this just takes it into just some really difficult thing. I'm going to read Galatians 2.16 again. Excuse me. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even if we have believed in Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the, work, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. All right, so that's it. It's very, very simple. Excuse me. i got a bad itch in my nose. I'm sorry. I don't want to be gross on the screen here. I just don't know what else to do. All right, so. All right, so according to uh, now number 144 through 147, okay, I'm going to read this paragraph all to you because it falls under a, falls under that. I'm going to read this to you, and then we're probably going to take a break after that. So according to Christ's ordinance, Peter is to have successors in his primacy over the whole church and for all time. The successors of Peter in the primacy of are the bishops of Rome. The Pope possesses full supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church, not merely in matters of faith and morals, but also in church discipline and in the government of the church. The Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra. All right, so let's, um, I'm going to take a break here, and then we're going to tackle this one, okay? So just bear with me for a moment, and we'll be right back.
All right, thank you. Uh, you just if you're listening online, uh, if you're listening live on Facebook or watching this on uh, on uh, Instagram later on, you will see that uh, that break just took a quick moment, uh, but it actually will go on for a minute or two as I have to throw a commercial in. Uh, so that's the that's the part of that. And while I'm doing that, I usually take a sip of, of something. Uh, I take a nice, good <laughs> draw from something. All right, it's usually sweet tea. All right, so again, according to Christ's ordinances, Peter is to have successors in his primacy over the whole church and for all time. The successors of Peter in the primacy are bishops of Rome. The Pope possesses full and supreme power of, and of jurisdiction over the whole church, not merely in matters of faith and morals, but also in church discipline and the government of the church. The Pope is infallible. That means he speaks without mistakes when he speaks ex cathedra. All right, so first of all, I just want to tell you that ex cathedra, uh, it does not mean, it doesn't mean from the cathedral. <clears throat> it means actually from his throne. All right, it means that he will sit on his throne and uh, his thing and, and speak. And when he speaks, it's infallible. So the Pope speaks without error. That's a pretty big thing to say. I, I don't know. I don't even know how to respond to that other than saying, wow. All right. So um, where do the Catholics get this from, that, the, that Peter has succession and he's in charge of the church? Well, let's look at this because this is where they've kind of missed out on it. All right. So here we go. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who was in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so let's take that apart a little bit. All right, I want to explain this to you. Because what they go with is um, Jesus saying, but I say this to you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, <clears throat> there's two different Greek words being used here. When Jesus calls, he says that you are Peter, he actually tells him, uh, G uh, Peter, you're, blessed are you, for you are Petros, all right? You're a stone, all right? But then he goes on to say that upon this rock, which is Petra, that it's a huge rock, I will build my church. So there seems to be a contradiction there. If he's calling Peter the a Petra, a little rock, or a chip of a rock, it's just a little piece, and then he's saying, but upon this rock, this huge rock, I am going to build my church. Now, all right, so let's look at this. What is being said here? Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What did he reveal? 
Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now Jesus says, upon this rock, this rock, meaning the, the confession of Christ being, of Jesus being the Christ. That's the rock that's being mentioned here. It's not Peter that they're going to build the church on. Peter does not take over as leader of the apostles. When you look at the book of Acts, look what happens in there. And when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock being that he is the, the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon that, he's going to build the church. Upon that confession, that's what it is. That people confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus is the Christ. That is going to be the confession that is going to build the church. All right? And he's right. The gates of hell will not overpower it. We're coming under, as a church today, we are coming under uh, a lot. And uh, it's interesting to see. I pulled this other article up, and I'm going to read this at another time, but the, the article is... Uh, says that Ted Cruz says the church is asleep and must wake up to defeat woke assault. And he says revival is coming. This is from Ted Cruz. Stuff's happening, people. Stuff is happening. All right, so it wasn't, it wasn't, um, Oh, there was the thing I was looking for. I put it down here. I don't know where I couldn't find it before. All right, so Petros means a stone, and Petra, upon this rock, this huge rock, I will build my church, okay? I also think that it's interesting that they, they believe that the Pope is infallible. It means he speaks without error. That's like, wow, all right? Um, wow, it's just crazy. All right. All right, so number 157 says membership of the church is necessary for all men for salvation. Nope, that is not in the Bible either. And when we were talking about Christ building his church, all right, because this kind of ties into it just a little bit, Romans uh, says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raises him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that you have to go to a certain church. Paul says this, For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's pretty, that's pretty plain and simple. And that teaching goes all through Scripture. That confession of Jesus, believing in faith and confessing him before men, it is what that's what's going to save you. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just like I say. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the Living God. That's what Peter was saying, and on that is what Christ is going to build His church. It's going to be on the confession of people who were once sinners, lost in sin, <clears throat> confessing that Jesus is Lord, <clears throat> and that is going to bring them to eternal salvation. And when he talks about the church, he's not talking about a, 
a specific building or a specific denomination. He's talking about the church. The church has made references as the bride of Christ. So it is the people that um, that confess that Jesus is Lord, that is going to build his church. All right? I hope everyone understands that. That's a pretty that's pretty pretty plain and simple. All right, so number one fifty nine. It is permissible and profitable to venerate the relics of the saints. Number one sixty says it is permissible and profitable to venerate images of the saints. So the relics of the saints to venerate them, and again, veneration means worshiping them, or they could say it holds in high respect, but it's the same word as worship. All right, you can worship the relics of the saint, and you can worship the images of the saints. Now, it's interesting, because it goes right against what the Bible says. Let's look at Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, nor any image of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourself down to them, nor serve them, for I, Yahweh, or Lord, or Yahweh, uh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, according to Catholic teaching, I found this interesting. The meaning of this commandment, the way they present it, would, would teach you, is, is simple enough, uh, but they say this. God forbids the making of religious religious images to be used in worship. So the commandment for, forbids pagan idolatry, the making of images of false gods, and not the represent, representation of our Lord, Mary, and the saints. But is that really true? No. Okay? They encourage you to pray to Mary and these saints, and they put up images of your saints. My grandmother had them all over the place. And can, you know, I mean, can you get a hold of what I'm trying to say here? That this is not what God said, okay? That the, he said, you will not, you will not make for yourselves an idol, nor any image of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow yourself to them, nor serve them, for I, Yahweh, am a jealous God. You'll not do it, okay? But praying to Mary or any of the saints or images is not what God commanded. He said anything in heaven or earth. He didn't say specifically or some. He wasn't talking about pagan worship, okay? Which is basically what you start to do when you pray to a saint or you pray to Mother Mary. I know that may hurt some of you and you've heard, but again, the truth must be told. I gotta come out here and I gotta tell you this, okay? It's just the way it is. All right, the living faithful, number one sixty one, can come to the assistance of the souls in purgatory by their intercessions or suffrages. Oh, I I I I, I really like this one. Okay. <laughs> First of all, what are suffrages? The prayers prescribed are promised for specific intentions. More particularly, suffrages are the masses, you know, the mass they hold, prayers or acts of piety 
offered for the repose of the souls of the faithful departed. So according to Catholic doctrine or Catholic dogma, when you have a loved one who's a Catholic that dies and they may not have achieved all that they do, they go to a place called purgatory. A purgatory is some kind of a holding cell where it's neither heaven nor hell, but it's just a, it's a place for ways. It's like a parking space. And you can do suffrages. You can offer a prayer. You can offer a mass. And they will pay. You have to pay the priest. Say, okay, I need you to have a mass for my loved one who's in purgatory. And they will hold a mass in honor of that person. And so that they will get this person eventually out of purgatory. You know? You know, it's like the, the Catholic who died and went to hell and said, you know, what do you got to say for yourself? He said, I'm not worried about it, man. I got somebody praying me out of here. And that's not what the scripture teaches, okay? Now, the to begin, there is no purgatory. All right, Jesus made this clear. And no other author in the Bible speaks of a waiting place. There is either heaven or hell for the departed soul to enter. There's no in-between. Now, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus tells it quite clearly, and I'm going to read it to you here. And this is out of, um, this is out of, uh, do, 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 where am I? I believe it's in Matthew. All right, so just bear with me here. Now, there was a rich man, and, and he habit, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he raised up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham far, far off, and Lazarus was in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been set so that those who want to go over there from here or to you come over this side will not be able to, nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes with them from the dead, goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, so it is clear from this story, uh, which is not a parable, by the way. Why? Because at no time when Jesus told the parable did he call men's names in it. And this, he said, there was a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus, okay? So now Abraham's bosom or Abraham's lap or Abraham's arms, however you want to describe, however it's in, whatever version you're reading from, is an is a ancient Jewish phrase for 
the righteous dead. So in other words, those people, and this is what I was almost alluded to earlier, those people in the Old Testament that were righteous, that did everything in that they could to follow God in every way possible, they still could not enter into heaven because they Christ had not died for that because there's still sin that has to be taken care of. And so, but God can't punish them by sending them to hell in a place of torment because they have, they have lived righteously. So God created us. It's another compartment of hell called Abraham's bosom. And this was a place where the righteous dead went to. So when your soul died, like, you know, like David or, or um, any of the prophets there, Moses, whoever, when they died, they weren't, you know, they, they, they shouldn't go to hell. They haven't been justified by faith yet because <clears throat> there was no Christ yet, and the sacrifice of Christ had not been made yet. It was coming. He, God sent them to a place called Abraham's bosom, and this was a place of comfort, a place they could be comforted and waiting for the Messiah to finally come. And it's clear in Scripture that after Jesus died, at some point he went down and rescued those people. You know, can you see him going through there, walking through, and saying, hey, you know, Elijah, what are you looking for? I'm looking for the wheel within the wheel. That's me. Hey, you know, you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what is it, you know, who are you looking for? I'm looking for that fourth man that was in the fiery furnace. That's me, remember? And that, that is what he did. And he preached to them the gospel, and then he brought those souls out, and now that compartment is empty. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all right, we're going to be getting to sacrifices here very, very shortly. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, there was no, um, there's no need for that compartment anymore to be, to be used. It's still there, but it's just empty. Now, <clears throat> now when a person dies, if they have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, okay, they're taken immediately into heaven, absent, with, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no in-between. There's no soul sleep. There's no, um, you know, there's no purgatory. There's no place that you're going to go into a holding cell and wait for a resurrection day. That your soul it immediately is taken to heaven to be with God. If you do not accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, your only option then is hell. And that's it. As harsh as it sounds, heaven or hell, turn or burn, that's it. If you repent of your sins, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God doesn't want phony faith. He doesn't want people saying, yeah, I believe in God, and look at all the good works I do to prove it. That's not what God wants. He wants true, sincere faith in him, believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if Christ had been not risen, there would be no salvation. Okay, that's a very key thing. Christ dying is one thing. He died for them, but he conquered death by rising from the grave. And after he rose from the grave, he went to heaven to sprinkle his blood on the mercy seat. Not, um, not 
for only certain people, but for everyone who will accept him and accept the sacrifice that he made for all people. All right. Now, number 187 through 189 says this. Christ becomes present in the sacrament of the altar by the transformation of the whole substance of the bread into his body and the whole substance of the wine into his blood. Number 189 says, The body and blood of Christ, together with his soul and his divinity, and therefore the whole Christ, are truly present in the Eucharist. Now, we come to a very interesting dogma. Okay, They believe that the Catholics believe that the bread and the wine at communion becomes the actual, literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. The word is called transubstantiation. Now, it's a long word that means the changing of one one substance into into another. Specifically in theology, the conversion in the consecration of the elements of the Eucharist, the the bread and the wine, um, and changing those into the whole substance of the wine into blood and the whole substance of the uh, of the the bread into the body of Christ and this is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church now think about this in every mass throughout the world in every catholic church Christ has to die again his death is evident that you have to consume his flesh and drink his blood that's what they believe and this is actually from the scripture where jesus said that and it's a perversion of what jesus said jesus at the last supper with his disciples were showing them the meaning of the the um, the elements on the table and he said look he said uh, this bread is take this bread and eat it it and he broke it. He says, it's significant of my body. He, doesn't, he didn't say, it is my body. He says, it, 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 if you look at the, the, the meanings of the words, he says, this is significant. This is my body that will be given up for you. And whenever you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. And when, so he's talking about the Last Supper. He's talking about this Seder meal, this Passover meal. When you do this, this is representative of my body that will be broken. The wine, this is representative representation of my blood that was shed for you and for all people. All right, so this is not what he meant that I am actually turning this bread into my body. It doesn't make sense. His body's right there, and this blood is flying into my blood. His blood's inside his body, so it doesn't make sense to me. Now, maybe you have a better explanation, but from what I look at this, I say, hmm. Mm, mm. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> we've got, um, it's a representation. The church, it's an ordinance of the church that we do have a communion together, that we commune together and we share bread and we share wine, but it is not actually the body of Christ. He said, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Whenever you do what? Whenever you come together for communion, when you come to this meal, that you will remember that this represents my broken body 
this represents my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Doesn't mean every time. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, it says, So Christ died also, for Christ also suffered for sin, for, uh, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all. He said, once for all time. That's it. Now, in Hebrews, has an interesting thing. Now, when you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews in one, one chapter, and I believe this is 13. Why didn't I put the references here? I'm so sorry. I believe it's Hebrews uh, 9. Okay, excuse me, 9. Verses 24 through 29 says there, 28 says this. All right, and the whole chapter of chapter 9 talks about um, the high priest. All right, and uh, Christ is our heavenly high priest. It's just like he's making reference to the, the author is making reference to the high priest who goes in just once a year and offers blood that is not his own. All right, but here we have him is explaining now, for Christ did not enter a holy place made by hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he, Christ, would have, to, would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is destined for people once to die and after this judgment, so Christ also, having been, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. All right. Christ died once for everybody. He didn't have to die over and over and over again at every Catholic Mass. And these are the things that make you know people say, well, they're a cult. And that... that uh, transubstantiation is very prevalent in the uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, and it's also very uh, prevalent in the um, the uh, in other um, uh, pagan rituals. So there's a lot of that, and you can go into a whole study of that, which I'm not going to do, but you can go look that up yourself. Uh, so the taking of communion in the Catholic Church thereby is another form of good works, works of faith. So to consume Christ's actual body and drink his actual blood in order to maintain their position in the church. Now, I thought this was interesting, that salvation rests on many things to them, including communion, which is what the, they are banning the politicians for. So we'll go back to that article now just for a moment. All right, so, um, yeah, apparently the, uh, the Catholic Church is taking a stand. Now, God bless them. They're, they take a stand on many things. Uh, there it is, Democrat warns Catholic Church. It may be stripped of all tax-exempt free status if they do that. So here's the, the government threatening the church. Fun stuff, fun stuff. More to come. Keep your eye on that. We'll see where that goes. So now, um, 
So what they're doing is they want to stop. They're banning those politicians who go against the beliefs of the Catholic faith. They believe that all life is sacred. So they don't, you know, the human life is sacred, and we shouldn't be aborting a baby in the mother's womb or even now up to five minutes afterwards, I understand. The baby can be born, and then they could murder the baby. That's what it is. It's murdering at that point. And if you don't believe me about the... Um, about the, the mass, okay, being a sacrifice and the blood of, uh, body and blood of Christ. Uh, dogma number 201 says holy mass is, the holy mass is a true and proper sacrifice. So every single time there's a sacrifice of God, a sacrifice of Jesus at the holy mass, all right? All right. Now, number 205 says the church has received from Christ the power of remit, remitting sins committed after baptism. 206 says, by the church's absolution, sins are truly and immediately remitted. 207 says, the church's power to forgive sins extends to all sin without exception. Well, we've come to the last thing I want to cover today. And this can be a very touchy subject, but it's good that we, uh, that we cover this. Now, I'm going to read an article right here. And this was written by Wayne Jackson, uh, who answers to, to a question to someone. And it's, a, it's pretty short, but let me read it. And I took this from the ChristianCourier.com, but listen to this. Does any man have the right to forgive sins? Some suggest that Jesus granted this authority to the apostles and then through them to others. Okay, and they say John 20, 23. Can you explain this passage? So the author goes on to say, shortly before his ascension, Jesus said to his apostles, Whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained, in John 20, 23. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ was actually granting to the apostles the authority to forgive sins, and that the apostles passed on to their successors, supposedly the Roman priesthood, the same license to pardon sin. This position is false. Consider the following points. First, no interpretation is placed upon a difficult and obscure passage such as this one that would place in direct conflict with numerous other clear texts. The fact is, though, all Christians are to forgive one another. Now, you could forgive. If you do something against me, I can forgive you for it. Now, whether God forgives you for that, that's another issue entirely. But I believe, I, I forgive you. I forgive you if you did something against me. And that clears my conscience between me and God, okay? Um, so we're to have a forgiving disposition, according to Ephesians 4.32. Ultimately, only God can bestow ultimate pardon. And there's many scriptures for this. I'm not going to read them all, but Psalm 130, verse 4, Isaiah 43.25, Daniel 9, 9, Micah 7, 18, Acts 8, 22. The Lord did not grant that right to the apostles or anyone else. Second, there is a biblical idiom whereby one sometimes is said to actually do what he is merely authorized to declare. For example, Pharaoh's butler said regarding Joseph, me, me he, Joseph, restored unto mine office. And him, the baker, he hanged. 
Joseph did not actually restore the butler to the office, nor did he personally hang the baker. He merely announced by prophetic insight that what the fate of these men would be. Another example of that is found in Jeremiah. Then, Jer- then Jehovah put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And Jehovah said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. That's in Jeremiah 1.10. Notice these active verbs. Did God, the, did God appoint the prophet to actually destroy and overthrow kingdoms or merely to declare their destiny? The answer would be obvious. He's there to declare their destiny. Also, we need to look at the grammar in 2023. We should also consider this important part. The Greek tenses of 2023 make it clear that the apostles were authorized only to announce the terms of forgiveness on the basis of God's previous appointment. Literally, the test suggests, those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven, and those whose sins you do not forgive have not already been forgiven. The first verb in the two clauses are aorist tense forms, while the second verbs are in the perfect tense. The perfect tense verbs imply an abiding state which commenced before the action of the aorists. In other words, the apostles and others since that time were only authorized to declare forgiveness consistent with what the Lord had already determined. In comprehensive treatment of the passage, note the Greek scholar J.R. Manley points out that the Greek fathers never quoted this passage in support of in support of the concept of evolution. Finally, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were authorized to announce the terms of salvation rather than personally granting it's confirmed by the fact on the day of Pentecost. In harmony with the Spirit's, gui- the Spirit's guidance, they did not personally forgive the sins of anyone. Rather, they merely proclaimed the conditions of par- pardon, which men and women were amendable. To believers who sincerely inquired, what shall we do? Peter responded, repent ye and be immersed every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Or be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin. Uh, that's in Acts 2, verses 37 through 38. Subsequently, the reader is informed that they then that received his word were immersed or baptized. Hence, we conclude that the basis of his testimony, that means of that word, they receive forgiveness of their sins. So John 2023 20, does not sanction the modern Catholic clergy procedure of granting absolution of sins. So a priest cannot forgive you of your sins. Okay, he can't do it. He can't do it. So <clears throat> going to confession and confessing your sins, and that's biblical. You confess your sins to one another. But it doesn't give the priest the right to say, okay, I absolve you of your sin in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go say 20 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers and be done with it. And it's not what it is. And that's not paying for the sacrifice or paying for the sin and hoping it will go away. It's not a remission of sin. Only Jesus can forgive your sin. And that by coming to him and saying, Father, I'm a wretched sinner. I need your help. I need Jesus to come into my life and be my personal Savior. Jesus took the punishment that I deserve so that through faith in him, I could be forgiven. With your help, I place my trust in you for salvation. 
Thank you for your wonderful grace and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Amen. That's what it's all about, folks. That's what it's all about. It's Jesus dying on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. All right. If you have any further questions or got any comments on the show, please feel free to private message me or you can go to thetruthmustbetold.org. My email address is across the bottom of the screen now, thetruthmustbetold93 at gmail.com. Or you can go to thetruthmustbetold.org, and there's a link there. And you can uh, go ahead and uh, click on that link, and you can uh, uh, send me an email through there. Any comments, suggestions, if you prayed that prayer, let me know. I will work with you, help counsel you to grow in the love and, and, and admiration of the Lord and uh, as best that I can. So, uh, But it was good to see you here today. I hope that you guys enjoyed today's program. And uh, we'll be picking up this up again probably next week as we go into uh, the weekend. I'll have a little more time to do more research and get this thing set up because now we're going to go into the history of the Catholic Church and the, um, you know, where it's come and its power and things like that. So, so uh, just bear with us and we'll get there. So we'll see you again Thursday, God willing, on The Truth Must Be Told. It was great seeing you here. Thank you. God bless and have a wonderful day.